Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. So welcome to all of our live listeners and to those of you who will be listening to this on uh, our podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. So the topic of today's Power Hour is what if childhood lead poisoning was a global priority? So let me just introduce uh, the topic and then our speakers and we'll get into a, what I hope will be a really energetic and um, an interesting conversation. Globally, about one in three kids, you know, as many as 800 million, have blood lead levels that are higher than deemed safe by the World Health Organization. And despite clear evidence of harm, many countries simply don't have the capacity to monitor or regulate lead or protect their people from widespread exposure. So today, our panelists are going to be discussing uh, how lead affects children and their families, why lead poisoning has been overlooked uh, by governments and others to date, what are some of the solutions uh, to reducing exposure to lead? And uh, what impact will preventing lead exposure have on children worldwide? Let me first by, uh, start by sort of introducing our panelists. Um, first, uh, welcome to Drew McCarter. Drew is the executive director of Pure Earth, about which you'll hear more during uh, this, hour, this, uh, this power hour. Drew is an attorney and an economist who helped who's applied his training to environmental health for more than a decade. His efforts to reduce public health impacts from pollution include stints with development organizations, the UN Development Program, and for the past 13 years with Pure Earth. Uh, Dr. Lynn Panganaban is a family medicine specialist and a clinical toxicologist. She's a professor uh, and was former chair of the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Philippines College and was the former head of the National Poison Control Management and Control Center in the Philippines. Uh, you'll hear more about that from her. And I'm Dan Cass, and I'm the Senior Vice President at Vital Strategies for Environmental Climate and Urban Health. And I'll uh, chime in as well, drawing on my experience uh, on lead at Vital Strategies and my more than 15 years working at the New York City Department of Health, during which I oversaw um, environmental health. So. Lead isn't a new problem. We've been mining it for 8,000 years. We've known about its health effects for 4,000. We started regulating it 400 years ago, and we start, started really recognizing its impact on children almost 200 years ago. Lead that exposes children is found in paint and contamination from mining, smelting, and recycling operations and water sources as food adulterants and contaminants and in toys and other products. So despite these centuries of knowledge and clear evidence of harm, you know, we're not quite there yet. We still have this big problem. So let me start off uh, with you, Drew. 
Pure Earth works in 27 countries and has focused on dozens of lead prevention programs. Um, most of our listeners are going to be unfamiliar with the effects of lead on children and society. So maybe you can start by talking a little bit about uh, the health effects of lead and some of the things you've seen in your work. Sure. Thanks, Dan. And it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, you know, one of the the hard things about working on lead is that some of the impacts are difficult to diagnose. It's not a disease that presents itself very obviously. Um, but among children who are the most vulnerable to lead poisoning, some of the symptoms that are common are developmental delays. Fundamentally, lead is um, quite dangerous to the developing brain of a child. And lead poisoning can lead to these intellectual uh, development delays to learning disabilities, um, to weight loss and appetite loss, vomiting and abdominal pain. Um, and there's a long list of these symptoms of lead poisoning. But the ones that kind of keep me up at night and have kept me working on this issue for 13 years are really the impacts to the brain. And lead's ability to deprive a child of, its, of the child's full intellectual potential and the impact, the, the unfortunately permanent impact that lead can have on a child's IQ and ability and their ability to regulate their social behavior. So all of these symptoms can have quite pronounced impacts on the rest of a child's entire life and kind of their trajectory through life. Um, then in addition to these kind of personal clinical symptoms, all of these impacts on the brain um, have societal impacts. Once a, a large number of children, say, across a country are exposed to lead, then you can really see these personal impacts play out on a societal level. Um, and countries or areas that have high rates of lead poisoning, um, that often correlates with higher rates of crime, um, lower educational attainment among those children, uh, which then kind of has a knock-on effect of lower lifetime earnings those children, which can impact indeed a whole country's kind of uh, economic development trajectory. Um, these families will have downward social mobility and they'll be more likely to be on some kind of public assistance. So it really ranges from the very personal and intimate impacts to these broad societal and development impacts. Yeah, I'm struck by, you know, this is a classic problem in environmental health uh, generally, which is that, you know, these impacts on health and development uh, that are known uh, or knowable by the public sort of health world um, are largely the responsibility of decisions made outside of the domain of public health. They're industrial, they're, uh, they're around uh, commercial activity, they're around uh, environmental protection. Um, let me sort of move to Lynn and talk a little bit about what your experience has been in the Philippines at engaging the public health system to um, to really support changes in the potential for exposure. Okay, thank you, Dan. And first of all, good day to everyone, and thank you for the invitation to be part of this podcast. I do agree that uh, environmental exposure, such as lead, poses a great deal of uh, harm to majority of people. But at the same time, because of the nature of it being like a uh, hidden type of illness that mimics other illnesses that becomes a challenge and puts it as a low priority among governments. And uh, very important that we do establish a sort of exposure and a link 
for between the environmental exposure and the appearance of diseases. Diseases often appear quite late in time. And so if you don't have any monitoring in place in countries such as in the Philippines, for instance, it's not that strong enough, then we will really miss that out. And so that's where the challenge is as far as really linking up uh, the impacts of environmental exposures to development of illness. Uh, Lynn, what do we know about the state of uh, lead poisoning in the Philippines? How serious a problem is it? And what is what is underway in the Philippines to try to address it? Okay, uh, that's number one uh, agenda that we've always been pushing. Uh, both my role as being in, in government as well, working in the National University Hospital, and being involved in uh, uh, private sector activities and NGOs like Pure Earth here Philippines. So establishing the exposure of lead by measuring blood lead levels have really been a challenge, especially among vulnerable populations such as children. We, we did uh, see some studies that were done in the country starting in the 80s with levels of lead uh, very high ranging to as high as about 24 micrograms per deciliter. But like 20 years later, we saw like a drop of this uh, levels to as low as about seven micrograms per deciliter. However, these are not uh, uniform studies. There's no standard by which we measure blood lead level in the country. And so these are independent studies and coming from different areas in the country and covering different age groups. So it's quite difficult for us to really establish how, how high and low would the lead exposure be like. But there is another set of data that... that uh, exist as far as epidemiology here in the country and have been part of looking into the data and exposure of children in communities near industrial areas where lead was documented in environmental media and workplaces. And the levels were really higher than what we do see as background of about seven micrograms per deciliter that I mentioned earlier. We've seen studies and this is both my working with government at the same time with Pure Earth Philippines, that we'd seen levels of children as high as like 51, 65 micrograms per deciliter. And this, I would consider these children are now poisoned because when we look at the endpoints and Drew earlier mentioned about IQ uh, detriments, and we did see that these children have higher blood uh, lead levels of greater than five micrograms per deciliter, have really shown very uh, low uh, scores as far as their IQ uh, is concerned. And the scores are in all domains as far as measuring the capability of a child in terms of learning ability. Um, just for some context, you know, the average blood lead level in young children in the United States is now about one and a half micrograms per deciliter. And while no mm -hmm. one would claim that we've completely tackled the problem of lead, mm -hmm. because of course it's much, it's higher in uh, vulnerable populations, it's an environmental justice issue here, uh, the levels are quite a bit lower. So you're describing uh, typical levels in the Philippines that are quite a bit higher. Drew, you know, the United States has made such enormous progress on the reduction of average blood level. You know, when I was a kid, Though there wasn't great data, people estimate that the average blood blood level in children exceeded 15 micrograms. Um, why can't we just replicate around the world what's been done in the United States? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, the progress that has been made on a, some of the, the common sources of lead that were really prevalent in the past are great models that we should try to replicate. So, for example, in the U.S. and in many countries, the exposure source that was driving most of our lead poisoning traditionally was leaded automobile fuel. And I think it was just this year or just last year that we celebrated the last country on Earth um, banning such leaded fuels. Um, and so that's a great success. There's also been a lot of success around the world in encouraging countries to adopt regulations of lead-based paint. I, I don't know the exact number, you know, it's always creeping up, but I think we're around half of the countries in the world, maybe just shy of half, that have adopted some kind of lead-based paint regulation. Um, so these are really encouraging, you know, the ban of leaded fuel is a great success story, and the leaded paint regulation is an ongoing success story. Um, but the challenge is that there are really a broad diversity of sources of lead poisoning out there. And those sources, those products and those environmental media that drive lead poisoning, they really vary quite distinctly from place to place. So if you identified, for example, in Mexico, they have a challenge regarding lead-based glazes that are used in traditional ceramic ware. And now progress is being made on that, but solving that issue does not address global lead poisoning because it's rather specific. It's not wholly specific to Mexico, but it's rather specific to Mexico. Um, and so really to, to tackle this issue at a global scale, we, there's, you know, there's just this diversity of sources that we need to get a handle on. Fortunately, there are some dominant ones um, that we're making progress on, but it's not kind of a one-shot solution here. Uh, you know, one key to the sort of success of the United States, apart from the prohibition on lead and gasoline, has, has been that we have a really robust surveillance system for understanding exposure. Um, uh, there aren't that many countries in the world that do. But here in the United States, we take for granted that uh, every kid can be evaluated and tested. And depending on the level of exposure, you know, action can be taken by physicians and governmental inspectors and enforcers, property owners and others to address uh, sort of known sources, especially uh, paint in the United States. But, but that just isn't the case elsewhere. You know, I think uh, one of the things that all three of us are involved in is helping to establish these surveillance programs that are really striving to estimate blood lead levels um, in children in uh, low and middle income countries. Um, you know, we talk a lot in the Power Hour about the really critical nature of public health data to drive uh, solutions. Um, but the truth is, we we just don't know. We're relying on so much modeled and sparse information around the world to really understand the extent of the problem and who's at greatest risk and in what ge subnational geographies. And and as you point out, Drew, really trying to identify the critical sources um, in different countries that does in fact vary. Um, Dr. Lin, I, I, I know that you're working on a broad surveillance program in the Philippines right now, and I think there's something particularly innovative about it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you've been trying to integrate surveillance into more traditional public health uh, surveillance efforts and surveys. Uh, thank you, Dan, for bringing that, that up. Yes, it's been, as I, I mentioned earlier, as a challenge really setting up a monitoring system and a surveillance to be able to establish exposure. Uh, we... I think we consider here with Impure Earth Philippines that the collaborative effort that we've done with the um, 
with a government agency that is engaged in a national survey on nutrition. Uh, it's like a breakthrough, breakthrough uh, through for us in terms of establishing uh, lead exposure. Uh, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's more of riding on on what is the existing national survey in the country that we have. We are grateful that uh, this uh, private-public uh, uh, partnership is moving forward. And uh, it took months for us to really get the engagement of the Food and Nutrition Research Institute to include uh, blooded levels in, the, in their national nutrition survey. And so we're heading there. We're, we're collecting some data at the moment, uh, not quite a lot yet because of the pandemic that hinders, hindered us to go full blast in terms of collection of uh, data and samples. But we're trying to take a look at an, a broader sense of, of what really is a background level of lead among our children and the pregnant women. And we hope this is going to be a continuous uh, engagement with them. We're glad that a meeting with them last week, uh, we're getting positive results that they are working it out, that uh, lead will be part of the nutrition survey, national nutrition survey that they will be doing in the next years because this survey is actually being done like uh, every two and a half to every five years so we hope that this is going to be part of a to be part of the mainstream in terms of surveillance and uh, being a uh, part of a um, science and technology agency uh, food and nutrition research institute hopefully will be able to move this forward yeah, and the other thing perhaps that we're doing at this time is we want to engage the local health uh, for officials as far as realizing the status of uh, lead exposure among children and pregnant women in their locality. So we're again grateful that we are given opportunities to have meetings with them and that we can develop uh, some ways forward on what we can do about it. So it's more of like an engagement thing with many stakeholders that we can involve in, in starting off hopefully a, a true surveillance system. That's great. Uh, one of the, last year, um, picking up on the engagement of the uh, clinical health sector, last year the World Health Organization released uh, the, its first global guidance for clinicians mm -hmm. on the detection and treatment of blood lead of uh, childhood lead exposure. Um, and I know that there are efforts underway in different countries to try to adapt these to, to local contexts. Uh, mm -hmm. Drew, I know that a project that we're doing uh, together with Vital Strategies of Pure Earth uh, will be helping to adapt those guidance, uh, that guidance documents in uh, India, Colombia. Uh, and Vital Strategies has already made some of that effort with the Peru Ministry of Health, which is adopting a brand new guidance that um, is aligned with the WHO guidance, but that really puts, uh, uh, reckons with the reality that testing is just simply not available uh, around the world. So, Dr. Lin, you've pointed out the importance of, you know, surveillance and of health sector engagement. Drew, may maybe you can talk a little bit about what else needs to be done, like on the awareness front, to really drive uh, progress on this. You know, policy is driven certainly by good data and by good leadership, but it's also driven by pressure. Uh, what are some of the things Pure Earth has been doing around uh, broadening public awareness on this issue? 
Yeah, that's a, a key part of the solutions here. Um, I think that the awareness raising and the surveillance that you were just discussing kind of go hand in hand. And the reason I say that is, you know, for the last five-ish years, we've had, you, know, you mentioned models that estimate blood lead levels in countries around the world. And that's a really interesting tool that we have for raising awareness. Um, however, bringing a estimate based on a model to a national government and saying, you know, we would like to work with you on lead because we have concerns based on this estimate from a model, that's not nearly as compelling a message as your government recently ran this surveillance program and generated this data that speaks to quite a severe and significant problem nationally. That's just so much of a clearer and, you know, frankly, a, a, a message that they trust more. Um, and it's a message that I think kind of hits home among the general population as well. Um, we, you know, we put out a lot of press around our findings regarding the prevalence and severity of lead poisoning, and that gets picked up by local news agencies, which then informs the public, which then creates sometimes subtle, sometimes not pressure for decision makers to address the issue. But really, I think that our strongest advocacy and awareness programs are based on really solid surveillance data. Um, nothing speaks louder than kind of hard data. And when you connect that data with what we know about the impacts of lead, lead is perhaps the best studied chemical on earth. Um, so these, these symptoms and societal impacts from lead poisoning, they're very well understood at this point. Um, and if you have hard data about the prevalence and severity of lead poisoning, you can really connect that to these individual and societal impacts. And all of a sudden, you can start making really compelling messages, not just to a uh, broad population, but to ministries of environment, ministries of health, ministries of education because of the impacts to education, ministries of finance because of the impacts to uh, national GDP and lifetime earnings. So you can really start talking to different groups with different messages that speak to their interests. Dan, can I add uh, something please. more to what yes, Drew please. said? Very interesting, really, as I really I agree with Drew, that coming up with our own data, local data is really important. Last week, when we did, we had the, our first uh, meeting with around there about I think uh, seven uh, representatives from seven sample sites that where we collected blood lead level. Interestingly, when when we presented the aggregated data, the uh, our local health officials, the first thing they did was, can we get our own data that uh, reflects our own community? So that, that tells us that it's, it's a good start that you provide them with the data that they have in their community so they would see the reality of what's going on in their area and that they would, we can be able to move on and really identify uh, what are the potential sources and uh, what their capability uh, would be in addressing that exposures and, and, that's where maybe the reality of it, of knowing what your situation is in your community based on the uh, local data that was collected is really impacting at the moment. Yeah, that the value of, uh, of 
really good local information is uh, can't be overstated. Um, I want to turn maybe in a slightly different direction uh, by probing with both of you a little bit about uh, the sources of lead. You know, one way to frame the problem of lead is that it is yet another commercial determinant of, of health in that there are uh, industries, commercial activities that continue to introduce lead into the environment. Um, and I wonder if you could share your perspective on what it will take to really modify practices that lead to exposure in the beginning and not just around uh, you know, the treatment and identification at the individual level of what can be done. You know, why, why is lead still being used and, and what are some examples of some of the work you've been doing to, to address it? Drew, you wanna start? Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, so in my view, lead is kind of used in two ways, and that is it's used wholly inappropriately in some products, in products that it just has no business whatsoever being in. And then there are still commercial products that as a society we rely on that use lead that uh, I think we're now kind of in a transition away from as a society and as a kind of a global economy. So let me start with the first group. We find lead in products that it, where it just doesn't belong. Um, one of the ones that is kind of emerging as a bigger issue than we would have thought, say, five years ago, is lead that is intentionally added to food products, particularly spices. And it's added in the form of industrial pigments that have sometimes about 50% lead or lead chromate. Um, and it's added in this case of spices just to make them brighter so that people think that they're better, higher quality, and so that they're more attractive in the marketplace so they catch your eye. And maybe if you're a tourist, it looks beautiful mixed with all these beautiful colored spices and it encourages you to buy it. Um, but that's a product, I mean, that's a product 100% of which is ingested by people. And that's just putting poison in food, basically. Um, so, you know, the same is true for cookware, both ceramic and metal. We find not only lead in these lead-based glazes and some ceramics, but oftentimes in um, kind of cheap aluminum cookware that's made in small batches. This is very common around the world to have aluminum cookware just kind of poured in backyards and, you know, a small artisan shop that makes these kind of cheap kind of wok-shaped pots. We find um, a disturbing amount of lead in these and it just doesn't belong anywhere in these products at all. And then on the other hand, we have the case of lead-ass batteries, or what we would commonly just call a car battery. It's those big, heavy ones that are in cars, trucks, and motorcycles. Um, and this is, this is a product that we rely on very heavily as a society. It not only is in um, all cars, including electric cars, but it's used around the world for backup power storage in places where the electrical grid is not that reliable. It's used for power storage in rural solar electrification projects. So interestingly, it's a product that is necessary for some of our climate, um, climate change mitigation activities. Um, and this is where the vast bulk of the world's lead goes. I, think it's about 85%, I might be off by a percentage or two there, of the world's lead goes into these batteries. And so the fact that we're so reliant on these makes it a very tricky issue because the lead is rather safe when it's in the battery, but becomes potentially dangerous during the recycling process, depending on how that battery is recycled. So I'll pause there, Dan, and see which direction you want to go on sources. 
Uh, well, Dr. Lin, do you, want, do you, do you also want to um, chime in a little bit about some of the um, sources that you're seeing in the Philippines and the extent to which, um, you know, there is resistance to trying to uh, eliminate those? Okay. Um, Drew mentioned the two areas where sources of lead uh, would be coming from. In the Philippines, there have also been a lot of effort as far as uh, um, the recycling of uh, lead batteries because it's a very big industry here in the country. But it's covered by environmental laws, occupational laws. And it's, to my opinion, it's much easier as far as managing germ the, the exposures because we're bound by the cradle-to-grave approach as far as ensuring chemical safety with regards to our environmental laws. What is a big challenge actually are the commercial products. You know, the uh, lead that is found in cosmetic products, in toys of children, though there are efforts at the moment as far as elimination of lead in paints. And, uh, well, I think uh, that's one of the successes that our government has achieved also, that they have limited uh, lead paints to as low as 90 parts per million based on the chemical control order of our Environmental Bureau. However, we still also do see um, lead uh, levels in cooking wares, in, as I mentioned, toys, in art materials that are coming in. And there's no one agency really in government that controls all these commercial products. So some of them are controlled by our Food and Drug Administration, some of them by our Department of Trade and Industry. And so there's this challenge now of ensuring how do we protect the general population uh, with regards to exposure to these uh, commercial products that are not within the confines of industrial or occupational settings. And this is where a big uh, question mark still is in the country of, of what are the sources. But as I mentioned, the art materials, and these are always coming up in terms of reports uh, when our NGOs would be monitoring and so the regulation of all these other products that I do believe will uh, be a source of exposure to more people uh, rather than the industrial and the occupational settings. Dan, can I add a, a note? I forgot the second half of your question, which is what are we doing about some of these sources? Do you mind if I jump in with a, just a couple examples? Absolutely, because that, that's my follow-up. And in the few minutes we have remaining, I want to hear about what we're doing. And I and Drew uh, and then Dr. Mm -hmm. Lin uh, a bit about what what you think it'll take, basically, to uh, to make much more rapid strides in this area at a, at a global scale. Sure. On the response side, um, among these products that simply don't need any lead and where it doesn't belong whatsoever, um, I wanted to just highlight kind of two efforts that we have that are ongoing that I think have been promising, um, not just at addressing a particular source of lead, but at hopefully diminishing population-wide exposure. So, and those are the Republic of Georgia and Mexico. Um, some years back, a coalition of actors in Bangladesh began working on adulterate, lead-adulterated turmeric in Bangladesh, which was quite a significant challenge there. And in just a couple of years, they made great progress reducing the concentration of lead in turmeric across the country. The recent data suggests that I think north of 20% of all samples of turmeric 
previously had quite dangerous levels of lead. And in the latest round, I think it's below uh, point, it's around 0.5%. So really tremendous success. And we, and that was led by Stanford University and a national group called ICDDRB and the Food Safety Agency, and maybe some other actors that I'm not aware of. Um, and we saw that and thought, wow, this is just a great model that they have created here. There are other countries that have this challenge. We're just going to start talking to them, learn everything we can about what they did and try to replicate it. And around that time, UNICEF and the Republic and the government of the Republic of Georgia had just conducted a nationally representative blood-led monitoring or surveillance campaign and had discovered truly devastating levels of childhood lead poisoning. I think 40 or 41% of the kids in the Republic of Georgia had a blood lead level above five micrograms, which is that kind of threshold that you mentioned in the beginning. So we just, we actually borrowed some of the, the researchers and practitioners that had worked on the Bangladesh project, um, brought them into our project so that our staff could learn. And in conjunction with a number of national and international actors, um, we believe that we've replicated that result in the Republic of Georgia and that our latest um, surveillance of samples of spices shows that the levels have decreased a hundredfold since uh, about 2019. And that was done through a combination of, of government regulatory enforcement agencies taking this issue really seriously and enforcing existing food safety laws whenever there was demonstration that they were broken, and our organization adding to their analytical capacity to basically go into markets and test spices. Previous to this, they just weren't testing that much. They didn't have the, the, the laboratory and the staffing and just the full capacity to do much testing. So we took it from several samples a year to hundreds and hundreds of samples a year, and then used all that sampling to trace the contaminated samples back up to suppliers and then work directly with those suppliers to inform them of what the law is, to inform them of what we found and how those sampling results demonstrate that they're breaking the law, um, and then to talk with them kind of one-on-one -on -one about whether lead was getting in intentionally or accidentally, and then regulatory authorities doing their job whenever they deemed that a law was being broken. So it was really a coalition effort, and the results in Georgia, we, we know the kind of environmental results that spices are much, much cleaner than they used to be, and we're waiting, hopefully, to also have the health impacts of that confirmed through new rounds of blood lead level testing. So that's one example on spices, and I'll keep the next one very short. In Mexico, I've mentioned they have this challenge with ceramics. It's one of these things like paint where lead just isn't necessary. Um, but transitioning away from lead-based glazes requires training and working with producers on their equipment. And so it's, it's, and it's a situation where both lead needs to be banned in the glazes that are used, but also mostly the, um, the indigenous communities that create this pottery also need help so that their livelihood isn't decimated um, to transition to these safer practices. So, you know, here's a role for the government to take in creating the right legis regis uh, regulatory structure and a role for civil society actors to make sure that the impacts of that change are kind of gentle enough not to really damage entire communities. Thanks for that. Uh, and Dr. Lin, tur turning to you, what, what do you think it will take to really uh, try to scale some of these solutions 
um, to really address uh, address the problem of lead poisoning? Uh, I think that other than doing the blood lead uh, level, which will will establish like already an exposure internally, and uh, the, um, Drew was mentioning about uh, uh, market surveillance in terms of presence of lead in products that are commonly used by children and other vulnerable populations. There have been uh, small projects that have also been done, and this is uh, with regards to um, toys and art materials. Many years ago, I think uh, 10, 10 many years ago, there was a project that was, not what, that was initiated by a non-government organization tying up with our uh, industry in um, ensuring that these art materials that are produced here in the country, in the Philippines, are really, um, as much as possible, very low levels of lead uh, that uh, complying with the, with the laws. And interestingly, there are labels in these products. And so if you're a consumer, uh, that will tell you that the product that you're buying is uh, safe for your child to be used it's just unfortunate, unfortunately, it did not in any way progress that uh, it, it was quite, I think, a good uh, move for us to label our products that are eco-safe. And, and so we can allow our public to make the choice of uh, which would be uh, the products that they will buy for their children. But uh, we hope we can continue on with that. There, there are also initiatives, but most of them really are coming from our NGOs here in the country, but also engaging government to do so. Before the start of the school year, we always have like a um, advocacy um, and uh, information uh, campaign materials that we issue out for families and uh, also to be aware of which products would contain uh, lead. So our focus now is more, aside from, of course, the industrial settings, will be more of the products, school materials that children are, uh, are using. And uh, this puts pressure on government to tell them, yes, we have very good uh, laws in place, but look, there are still levels. And with that, we are able to take action and to investigate the source of these products and regulate the products. But what is challenging now are the e-commerce or products that are bought online is, some, is a big challenge for us at this time. But those that are locally produced here in the country, I could say that they are relatively uh, following the law. But those that are coming from being bought through e-commerce is a big challenge because we don't know who really would uh, be regulating this, uh, the, the entry of, of these products into the country. Yeah, I think that points to the importance of uh, trying to tackle this problem really simultaneously at a global scale. No one country uh, can depend exclusively on its own on its own progress without it uh, it happening elsewhere. Um, so, so I've been sort of taking you know notes and a, a short list of what I think we've heard in terms of some of the uh, efforts that are necessary to really. Um, address this in any given country. Certainly, uh, we've heard a lot about surveillance. Uh, we've intimated at the importance of laboratory capacity. You know, small investments in uh, laboratory equipment and portable analyzers, uh, 
to uh, really identify sources and levels of exposure uh, goes a long way. We need legal support for uh, the development or the enforcement of regulations. Uh, and then awareness is really critical. We've identified civil society awareness, the importance of clinician awareness, um, the training and advocacy to uh, keep pressure up for governments to recognize that lead, uh, if not a priority, needs to be. And finally, local levels, local support for uh, communities. I'm going to close just with a, a couple of quick remarks, which is to say that there is sort of progress in this area there. More donors have been stepping up internationally to support this work. Uh, Clarios Foundation, Takeda uh, Foundation, um, uh, UNICEF has been uh, both recipient and funding of some of this work, but it's not enough. Uh, and as is true in most public health interventions, the return on modest investments is so enormous. And so I, this is a plea to anyone you know, who's listening to really um, advocate to whomever you know um, or whatever source you know of potential support for this work uh, to, really, to really try to lubricate the, the machinery of government to, to address these problems. So I want to thank uh, both of you, uh, Drew McCarter and Dr. Lynn um, Pagdanamban, for this really enlightening discussion uh, about lead poisoning prevention. Uh, we hope to do more. And uh, remember, this is Lead Poisoning Prevention Week, so uh, pay attention to other activities, conferences, uh, blogs and videos that are underway this week to uh, really try to highlight the importance of this issue. And make sure to follow at Vital Strat and at Pure Earth Now for more announcements and blogs and videos uh, this week and, uh, and learn more about what the organizations are doing. If you enjoyed our conversation and would like to share it, look for the Public Health Power Hour podcast on your favorite platform like Apple uh, or Spotify. So with that, I just uh, want to say thanks for listening. Thank you for participating, and uh, we look forward to having you join our next Power Hour. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Vital Strat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.